Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who has covered the sport since Dale Earnhardt was racing a Ford. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You're going to learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you will ever hear. So Ben, the Daytona 500 got me thinking... We talked in the last episode about how it seemed like all of the Valentine's Day Daytona 500s in recent memory were, you know, were classics. You had 1988 with uh, Bobby and Davey Allison, 1993 with Dale Jarrett and Dale Earnhardt, 2010 with Jamie McMurray and Dale Jr. And then we had another one uh, very recently with the Daytona 500 and, and Michael McDowell coming out of nowhere to, to win that race, leading all of one lap. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. what, what was your impression of, 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 uh, of that event? Well, I'll tell you what, Aaron, it was one of those races that, first off, it felt fast to me the whole time. When Even when they dropped the green uh, initially, and sadly we got into that crash with f- only 15 laps completed when s- I think 16 cars got involved. But to me, it just seemed so fast and even uh, – Chase Elliott had even mentioned in his post-race interviews how he was surprised at how fast the race started off. And you want to try to, you know, manage yourself to a point where, you know, it's a long race. It's 500 miles, 200 laps. You got to back up a little bit and just kind of catch your breath. But he seemed to hold the whole pace seemed to be that way. And then we get uh, towards the end of it. And I'll be honest with you. I really thought Denny Hamlin was going to get that third yeah. consecutive Daytona 500. He was on rails all night long and the car was great. And then as it turned out, his crew got him out so fast on pit road that he ended up not being able to get back to, to the other Toyota cars and, and was not able to pull it off. And then on top of that, we have Michael McDowell who has never won a cup series race and Hey, if you're going to win one, why not win the biggest? One, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, <laughs> I mean, it was just, I hate that they wadded up some cars at the end there. I really do. And I've tried to go back and look at it several times to see if Michael got into somebody. He was trying to push, uh, Keselowski, but right. I think Keselowski was trying to drop low about that same time. And when it got into Joey and that's the consensus, I don't think he, intended anything like that to happen i'm not even sure if michael had that much to do with it because again keselowski was trying to go under logano and it went south and for you know it, it's just like the parting of the red sea it just yeah. you know those cars went high and low and there comes michael and boom here here's the daytona 500 winner so yeah it was an interesting race even though we had to stay up till about 12 15 eastern time to be able to see it it gave me a lot of uh, 2014 Daytona 500 vibes. Uh, if you recall, seven years ago, the 500, it was not on Valentine's Day. At least I don't think it was. Uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. won. So certainly not as big of an upset as Michael McDowell, which in my mind is probably top three. And we might discuss some, some 500 upsets in just a second, Ben. But the 2014 500, you had, they ran a few laps in the daylight, long rain delay, and then ran the vast majority of the race well at dark, finishing late at night, not unlike this one. I think a lot of fans have really kind of uh, gotten used to the Daytona 500 finishing under the lights for both of us. And we started, you know, watching this race. Uh, first of all, Daytona didn't have lights for, for mm-hmm. the, the oval as far as the 500 was concerned. And then that was the game changer when it came about in 1998. 
And it took them about a decade to get to where uh, the Daytona 500 frequently began to finish uh, under the lights and at night with a later start time. Uh, people will debate forever, as I saw on Twitter yesterday, about whether they should have started the race earlier. But regardless, we, we were gifted with another classic. So happy for Michael McDowell. Michael McDowell is the driver of the week for the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. And Ben, I'll start. I've got one Michael McDowell story for me. And mm-hmm. um, it was a couple years ago at Bristol Motor Speedway. I was uh, tasked with I was there on a work share program for, for PR, and I was uh, one of my things that I had to do was on that Saturday, this was the spring race in 2019, I would run a Q&A session in the suites with Michael McDowell. So they had the fans come up there and you know do this q and I'd done this before in Atlanta, so I, I, I kind of had an expectation of what I needed to do and had my questions ready to talk to Michael. And so I go up there, there's a little stage, you know, I sit down, I'm waiting for Michael. Michael comes in, there's like a dozen people in there. I'm anticipating a few more coming in and they do, uh, cause it's not long after the gates have opened on, on this particular mm-hmm. day. And, you know, I say, Hey, you know, whoever wants to ask Michael McDowell a question, come on over. Nobody asked a question. Uh, it wasn't <laughs> a Q and A. It was not a Q and A at all. They, uh, they got, they went and got his autograph and talked to him for a second, but it really wasn't a Q and A session at all. It was him and Chase Briscoe and myself and, uh, McDowell's PR guy. And the second half of what was supposed to be this Q&A, uh, the four of us just spent watching K&N, then it was K&N Pro Series, now the Arkham Menards Series East. I think I got that right, Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to know it as uh, the Bush North Series and all kinds of different nicknames. But yeah, so I, hanging out with Michael McDowell and, and listening to him talk about how the racetrack would change over the course of a day. And he's like, you know, yeah, they put that stuff on the track. Now, watch this O2 car, whoever it was. He'll go through it this lap. And then the next lap, he's going to go up high. You watch. And then he would do exactly that. And it really just kind of put you in with a great understanding of the psyche of a driver and how they're not just learning when they're in the car, Ben. They're also, they're constantly learning, just watching other guys, in this case, watching them from a suite, just kind of trying to pick up anything that uh, that they can, that they can use in his advantage. And and certainly McDowell has done that enough. He's paid his dues. He won the Daytona 500. He earned it. But that story and the fact that he knew what line these guys were going to run as soon as they rolled out on the track and then telling me two or three laps later, all right, now he's going to go up high. And this wasn't even me <laughs> asking him, Ben. This is just him saying, all right, you watch this guy. You watch now. He's going to go up high, and he's going to stay there for about five or ten laps. You watch. And he would always in the sentence with, you watch. Um, and he was right every time. And it, it kind of gave off Mark Martin vibes of somebody who had such a great attention to detail and an understanding of what these cars were capable of doing on different parts of the racetrack at different times of day that he was exactly right every time. And yeah, it sure was. And, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, you there, but, uh, it, you know, in listening to you tell that story reminded me of the fact that when I met Michael McDowell for the first time, and it was just an interview for some, for a feature I was working on at the time and I had never met him and he came uh, back to the hauler that day and we sat down on the back of the hauler and I'm telling you straight up, it, he was as nice and as genuine and uh, of anybody I've ever talked to and, and immediately, he was one of those kind of guys that immediately you liked him and you felt comfortable with him. And so for years after that, he would see me walking down pit road and he said, Hey man, how's it going? And you know, just, making me feel really good yeah. about being in his presence. I mean, he's just such a neat down to earth person and I just really admire that about him. And, and even, I mean, had, I'm sure for a fact, had I seen him in Daytona, had I gone to Daytona this time and didn't because of COVID restrictions and various things, uh, he would have done the same thing. And it was one of those guys, once you meet him, then you're like, okay, I'm friends with this guy, a great Christian guy. I met him over one, another time over at uh, what used to be Levine Family Racing. Right. And we had a sponsor situation or something going on over there, and he was going to greet some guests, and I was invited to come over. And we we pulled up some chairs and propped our feet up, and I asked him a few more questions for something else I was working on. That same vibe came back, just very down-to-earth, very easy to talk to. And I admire him a lot. He's And, you know, he's had a real struggle getting to what happened yesterday. Definitely. Years and years and years of trying to get the right ride. And and, and he even told me once, he said, you know, Ben, he said, I, I don't make the – the six figures that some of these guys do, these millions and millions of dollars, that's, I don't, that's not 
where I'm at. And so I have to have a ride and it has to be this and that. I, of course, I'm sure his bank account's a little better today, of course. Right. But yeah, but I mean, it's just one of those things. He said, I don't have all the, the fancy, you know, the, the planes and all the fancy, all this and those that. Those big buses and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, so anyway, it was just one of those really cool days that, I met him for the first time, and he, and ever since we met, we may not talk a lot when we speak to each other, but we always have a you know nice smile and a wave or a handshake. He's he's just a really really good down to earth guy. Michael McDowell, uh, for those of you who didn't know, he's also raced in open wheel cars. Before he went to NASCAR, he ran in the Champ Car Series for a little while in the mid two thousands. So this guy's done a lot. Uh, had a lot of talent. I think for a long time he was regarded as somebody whose biggest skill is probably on the road courses. I remember being super happy for him when he ran really great. I think he won an Xfinity race on a road course a few years ago. But seeing him succeed is great, Ben. I, I think when I got to rank the guys in NASCAR with the biggest smiles and the guys who smile the most, it is right there between Michael McDowell and Joey Logano. Do you know of anybody else who has that like big smile who's like smiling all the time? I guess it's those two guys and probably Richard Petty, right? Yeah, I would say so because – you know, that, that shows you how down to earth Michael is. He's very, very content in what he's doing. He loves being a part of the cup series. He knows that the ride he has maybe isn't as equal to say a Penske, a team Penske, or say a Hendrick motorsports week to week. He knows that the crew knows that. But what was so enlightening to me though, is always fun when you see a major race like the Daytona 500 and you see that one guy who's mixing it up with everyone and it's sort of like he's a little bit out of place but not necessarily because he's running so good on this race this day this time that you're you got a sort of you sort of got a heartfelt hope that okay maybe this is going to be a cinderella story in the making and that's exactly what happened last night and i was impressed with the fact that he could hang with those guys running fourth fifth third and then of course when it when it opened up with logano and and Keselowski uh, crashing there in turn three. It's just like, wow, here's here he is, and here I, I think the most the most surprised guy in the entire state of Florida maybe could have been Michael McDowell because I I, I think he he knew he's always said I know I could win the 500, but you still is like you got to be a little surprised and and just super super neat guy. Can't say enough good things about him. If you look up Michael McDowell on YouTube today, I think that some of the first results are going to be him winning the Daytona 500. But Ben, if you looked up Michael McDowell, even as late as Sunday afternoon of the, the week of the 500, it was the first result I would expect is that nasty crash he had at Texas 12 and a half years ago in qualifying when he was driving for Michael Waltrip Racing. This is in the days of the car of tomorrow. Guy goes in turn one flat out gets sideways, spins it, tries to correct it, goes head on into the wall like 190 miles an hour. That car didn't crash. It exploded. Mm -hmm. And it it was this horrifying accident that people were there. People have told me who were on pit road at Texas at the time, they'll say, I was there when Michael McDowell wrecked. And you instantly know, all right, this was spring. I believe it was spring or fall. I look at my memory. Spring or fall qualifying, 2008 at Texas. And... Mm -hmm. You know, Michael McDowell gets loose, smashes the wall. One guy said it sounded like there was a, a bomb went off in turn one. It was it was unnerving. And, mm. you know, on TV, Daryl Waltrip is, is, you know, he's worried. Everybody's worried. And the guy just climbs out. He's OK. And it was the first great example of, OK, this COT car, this chassis must be really safe if Michael McDowell can withhold withstand the hit like that. That's what he was known for, Ben. I feel like in NASCAR for the longest time was this horrifying crash he had. I'm so happy now that he can move past that. Uh, No different than another guy who had a bad wreck around that time, Joey Logano, barrel rolled down the corner at Dover in 2009. I talked with him about that in 2012, and I brought that up. I was like, hey, Joey, you're going to race Dover next week, and do people still ask you about that wreck that you had? And he's like, God, that's all they ask me about when I go there. He's like, yeah, can people sure. not forget that? And I bet Michael McDowell probably thought that too sometimes, Ben, because you know when he goes to Texas, if somebody's writing a story about Michael McDowell at Texas, it's going to be because he had that big crash in qualifying. Now the storyline is yeah. going to be a little bit different. I'm super happy for him. Uh, another thing about McDowell, 
as as nice as he is, he really is a very talented race car driver. He had to put himself in position to win that race. And Ben, there's been times where we've seen other guys in the Daytona 500 come close and make us think, man, this guy really might pull this off. And another one to me was 2012. It was raining. We weren't sure this this was the Marathon 500, and we weren't sure if it was going to get resumed or not. And Dave Blaney was ahead, so all these people were talking about Dave Blaney. Who's Dave Blaney? Is Dave Blaney going to win the Daytona 500? In this case, it was a little bit different because none of us thought McDowell was going to win. He's come out of turn four, and my first thought, Ben, was surely he's won this race. Whenever the caution light came out, he surely won. Mm -hmm. And then they still had to stress out a little bit. Um, but he got that win, and, and it's very neat, Ben. There's a cool trend that somebody noticed. I'm not going to take credit for it because I discovered it somewhere else. Uh, 2021, Michael, McDow- Michael McDowell wins the Daytona 500, first-time winner. 2011, Trevor Bain wins the Daytona 500, first-time winner. 2001, Daytona 500, Michael Waltrip wins it, first-time winner. So if it ends in one over the last few decades, it's a guy who's never won the 500. And even you go to 91... With uh, Ernie Irvin, he'd only won one race, but then the last three guys had never won any cup races. And Michael Walter in that 0 for 462 streak was snapped 20 years ago when we lost the great Dale Earnhardt. And then uh, on Sunday, Ben, Michael McDowell, I think he was 0 for 57 or 0 for 357, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot mm-hmm. of starts, something like that. It was one of those records up there that. You know, you don't often see a guy with a uh, a long losing streak or, or a long winless run, I guess I should say, Ben, actually win the 500 like Michael Waltrip and Sterling Marlin, but Michael McDowell made it happen. Uh, some other guys who have made a lot of great things happen. We are in episode seven of A Lifetime in NASCAR, Ben, so let's talk about the number seven car, switching gears for a little bit. What are some of your memories of, of great drivers in the number seven? Well, initially, uh, Aaron, I got to go back to the number seven with Alan Kowicki, of course, who, who uh, actually ran number thirty-eight, I believe, when he started in the Cup Series, and then switched over to number seven. And again, we've talked about this in past shows, but the way I've always understood it, with the lower the number, the more luck you have, and that's what I've been <laughs> yeah. told. Well, he so he proved the, it. The number seven came available, and he took number seven. And, of course, won the, the 1992 uh, Winston Cup Championship over Bill Elliott, as we've talked about in recent shows. Right. But that's the one that just really, really stands out to me in the number seven. And looking back at some little bit of history real fast, the number seven was actually uh, in the uh, Cup Series, which was then a strictly stock division first time it it ran was june 19th 1949 bob flock uh was the first driver to uh to run the car and he started on the pole but finished 32nd i think he had some type of engine problem or something like that so and was driving a hudson too by the way and he he led five laps let's throw that in but uh that's the first time the number seven had run in in the what is now the cup series but yeah the number seven has always been a lucky number for for many drivers, I think Sammy Johns ran the number seven for years back in the 60s. Right. And, then, and of course, Tommy Baldwin is a team owner that had number seven. Uh, and then right now, Corey LaJoy with Spire Motorsports is running number seven. So, the, yeah, it's got a long history. Even Jeff Bodine uh, pulled off some wins for yep. the number. So, uh, yeah, it's just it's one of those numbers that has got some good history to it. And I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. I think it's the only time the number seven won the Winston cup championship was with Alan Kowicki. I, I just assume you're right whenever you say anything, Ben. So, um, <laughs> well, not always, it, most of the time I think I'm okay, but sometimes I, I you hear me catch my breath on occasion. It's like, am I telling this right? But yeah, I'm pretty sure that's correct. Yeah. Yes. I, I play the percentages. So, uh, I met Alan Kowicki. I was very fortunate to meet him in 1992. I was four years old. He did an autograph session at, uh, Eastridge mall in Gastonia, North Carolina, and my parents took me to that. We actually were, in a, we were going to meet Davey Allison and Bill Elliott. Davey didn't show up. And at the time, we were wondering, like, you know, I wonder why Davey didn't make it. It wasn't like him. And, of course, later you put two and two together. This is a few days after the Winston where he had gotten hurt so bad and before the 600, so he was still recovering. Uh, he may have, I'm not even sure if he may not even been out of the hospital yet, in all honesty, because this was like a Tuesday or Wednesday leading up to the 600. So mm-hmm. we go, we meet Bill Elliott, meet a few other guys, too. And 
Alan Kawicki, I don't think he was one of them who was there. So, so, so my mom says, and, or he wasn't set up at the table, you know, where they do those autograph sessions. A lot of you guys, if you've been to autograph sessions, you know, they, you walk in, they have that sign, you know, kind of uh, drawing attention to it and they have that long table and people kind of go through. Well, Alan Kawicki wasn't at this at the time. He was shopping for something just in the men's department. And so I'm there with my, with my parents and apparently I walk around a corner and I like I see him and four year old me says what any four year old kid would say, you're Alan Kawicki. And <laughs> he thought that was the coolest thing. And he was like, yeah. So apparently I talked to him for a couple minutes and he signed an autograph for me. I have no idea where it is, unfortunately, but had this great experience with Alan and it wasn't, you know, it was less than a year later that we lost him, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but he, he was a, a tremendous race car driver. Uh, you know, certainly deserving of, of being in the Hall of Fame for all the things that he did and the short track background that he came from, humble beginnings in Wisconsin, making it to the Cup Series and winning a championship. And, you know, Ben, I mean, he was offered to drive for Junior Johnson and he turned it down because he wanted to do his own thing. And that that's such an impressive thing that, you know, since Allen won that title, the only owner driver to win one since was Tony Stewart in 2011. So, Pretty impressive stuff, but yeah, yeah, I always liked Alan. I'm sure. Do you have any Alan, like any memory of, of dealing with Alan at any time? Well, yeah, I do, Aaron. And it, I'll be honest with you, I didn't talk to Alan that much when he was driving, but I remember a, an interview I did with him at Richmond, the old Richmond racetrack. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he finished second that day. I believe it could have been a Bill Elliott victory there, too. Mm-hmm. And, but I remember him finishing second and I w- there's a photograph that I have here in my office of myself and several other four or five other reporters gathered around Alan and he's just explaining, you know, why he finished second or what his day was like. But when you talk to Alan, he didn't have a lot of personality. He was, his wheels were turning all the time in his mind and just trying to figure out how to make the car better or what we need to do next week, that kind of thing. He was, I'm sure in your case, he, he probably was very personable that day, uh, being, you know, around someone very young like that. But as far as being at the racetrack, he, he flipped switches to where it was all business all the time. And even his crew had a hard time talking to him sometimes about things because he was so focused and, and very much a perfectionist. It had to be exact or he would get very ill and you know uh, ray evernham even worked for alan kawicki at that's one right time and, for a short time for a short time he just said i we just we didn't have the chemistry between us and kind of hard to work for but what's interesting about alan kawicki's story to me is that at the time he was really coming up and you know junior johnson was talking to him about driving what would have been the Maxwell House car ended up being Sterling Marlin yep. in the 22 car, but it was going to be Alan Kawicki. But see, Alan thought he had the Maxwell House sponsorship to take to his cars, and it didn't work out that way. It ended up going to Junior. But he still said, no, I'm not going to drive uh, for you. I'm going to do my own thing. And he had a crew of about eight or ten guys, maybe 12 guys total, counting the guy who – maybe mop the floors and turn the lights off everybody. <laughs> and then he was, he won a championship against some of these teams that at that time probably had, I don't know, 75 or a hundred people in some cases, which pales in you comparison know. to now, of course. Oh, it does. Yeah. Because now we're in the 450 to 500 range yeah. at say RCR and Hendrick and Roush Fenway and, and Penske. But back then it's like, okay, you're proving something to us that we, are worried about and that is that if you can pull this off and win a championship with 12 guys why are we paying these other 75 to 100 guys to do the same you that we do what you did and we can't beat you yeah and so there was some sponsor talk about okay why are we hiring so many people so he kind of kind of ruffled the blanket there a little bit because he proved he could do it but that commitment took – it was a 24-7 all-the-time commitment from the team and from Allen, and they had to make do. And those guys would be an engine builder and a fabricator and a tire changer. And, I mean, they, they wore a lot of hats. They had to. They didn't have a big budget. But they did pull it off, and very impressive the way they did it. And as we talked about in a previous show, he won the championship in Atlanta, the final race. Bill Elliott wins the race. Alan Kawicki wins the title by leading one lap and the most laps. And that most laps was one extra lap. 
and he ended up winning it by 10 points and wins the championship. So very dedicated guy. And I tell you what, we were so heartbroken on April 1st, 1993, when we got word that his plane had crashed en route to Bristol Motor Speedway under some icy conditions and, and some problem, I think, with the airplane. But very sad night that when we lost Alan Kowicki, for sure. He was a uh, Alan Kowicki, very special race car driver. Uh, one thing really random, Ben, I don't know if you've ever encountered, uh, if you, when you watch TV, you watch like a sitcom or whatever, if you've ever encountered like the most random NASCAR encounter that you've ever seen on TV, well, for me, mine is about Alan Kowicki. I don't know if you've ever seen the show Arrested Development on Fox. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's one episode where they're panning to a wall and you can see what's on this wall. There's various things on it. And... One of the things on the wall is a check made out to Tony Gibson from Alan Kowicki Racing. <laughs> really? One of the most random off-the-wall things I've ever seen on TV. And I had to, like, pause it. And I was like, there's no way. Is that re- Am I really looking at that? And I was. It, yeah. it was a check. That, I don't have no idea how Ron Howard produced that and wrote that show. I have no idea how that they got that in their hands. But wow. yeah, so there was random check for Tony Gibson, who, you know, certainly became a successful crew chief in his own right decades later, winning races with guys like Kurt Busch. But yep. yeah, so this early 90s, you know, the first way I recognized it was that AK logo that Alan had. Um, yeah, it was just super random thing. Um, but yeah, I had to throw that in there because right. well, um, who would have seen that one coming? No, for sure. And, and you know, there's one other little story, interesting story about the number seven I'd like to share with you, too, real quick. But, you know, back when Kyle Petty won his first race in February of 1986, that's the race where Dale Earnhardt and Darrell Waltrip wadded the cars up, yep. you know, on the back stretch there at the old Richmond Raceway. And that was significant for the number seven because the Wood Brothers had run first. They, the Wood Brothers started off with number sixteen, believe it or not. I did not know that. And, yeah, and they they. Long story short, the way I remember it was they were coming back from a race, a modified race in Virginia, and something happened where the axle broke on the car that they were towing behind the truck. Back then, they didn't have cars, car haulers. They would tow tow them behind the cars. And somehow the car caught fire because the axle had broken. It just burned the car all to pieces in the middle of the highway. And so they ended up saying, we don't like number 16 anymore. We're going to switch <laughs> to something else. So I think Curtis Turner had been running 21, and they decided, well, let's just go with 21. And that's what happened. But now in 86, they had a sponsor, which was 7-Eleven. Yep. And for the first time in Wood Brothers history, they're saying, well, we want to change the car number to number seven. And they're like, well, wait a minute. We can't do that. We've run 21 the whole time. We're the Wood Brothers. We're the number 21 team. Well, to do the sponsorship, we need you to do that. So they did it with the understanding from NASCAR that when when the sponsorship went away, they would go back to number 21, and it would always be theirs. And so they worked the deal out. But interestingly, though, Kyle did run the number seven for a season or two there yeah and then they do they did go back to 21 and you know david pearson and and marvin panch and tiny lund and so many great drivers made the 21 popular for the wood brothers including trevor bain who by the way won his lone daytona 500 uh, in 2011 and just so interesting how that kind of stuff kind of works through a phone call or in the conversation things get changed and leads us down this path or that path but yeah the number seven was the the first number kyle petty won with when uh in 1986 at richmond so ben when uh you mentioned the uh the car numbers kind of interesting that a a sponsor could dictate a car number and i've I've thought this since fifth third bank was with roush fenway (laughs) and they've been there forever so like why did they let them keep 17 when they could have made them use 53 or just let them use number five thirds. I mean, you right. know, I think that'd be a really cool tie-in if they did the 53. I, I kind of anticipated that. I think Sinhouse was driving the car when they announced this sponsorship. And I was like, change the number. That would be cool, you know? Um, yeah. And you, you don't see that very often. You've never seen that historically. It's why it's why the Wood Brothers changing from 21 to 7 for a sponsor's sake is still such a big deal because it, it's so rare, you know, if... If, uh, heck, if, um, 
if the Four Seasons, you know, wanted to sponsor a car and it wasn't Kevin Harvick, I don't think they'd fight Stuart Haas that hard to get the number four. Um, but you never know. You never know what the yeah. sponsors want. Uh, a whole lot of things in NASCAR are very hard to predict. One of the things in NASCAR that's very hard, it's extremely hard to predict, Ben, we have seen this on multiple occasions, is when a new track enters the NASCAR schedule, who will win the first race? So this week on episode seven of A Lifetime in NASCAR, our track of the week is Texas Motor Speedway in Fort Worth, Texas. I remember being very excited for the first race they ran at Texas, Ben. They had some issues, we could say, with the track being a little bit too narrow. They had some issues with rain. Those wound up getting taken care of in time for the next year, I believe. But in that first year, you had all these guys that were, you know, contending. Jeff Gordon was winning all the time, and on the off chance he didn't win, Dale Jarrett or Mark Martin were winning the races. But the guy who won the first race at Texas, not unlike Michael McDowell, gets his first career cup win in a Ford. It was Jeff Burton. That was a uh, it kind of began a trend, Ben, at Texas. For the first several years of that racetrack, it seemed like guys who hadn't won a race before um, or hadn't had a lot of success at the cup level were doing really, really well at Texas. And you'd think when you look at Texas Motor Speedway, all right, well, it looks a lot like Charlotte. It's got that, you know, one and a half mile quad oval. It's got the dog leg. Very similar to Atlanta as well. But for whatever reason, there have been some guys who really figured out Texas better than those other two tracks. Jeff Burton figured it out in 97, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. got his first Cup Series win at Texas Motor Speedway in 2000. That was a pretty special day, Ben. Uh, You got any recollection of what it was like seeing uh, Dale Sr. celebrate with his son in Victory Lane that year? I do remember that very well, and there was a gentleman by the name of Jade Gers, who was the PR director yeah. for Dale Earnhardt Jr., and Jade has laughed about this several times, but he told me, he said, when I was in victory lane with, and Dale Jr. rolled in there, he said, I heard, I saw this big arm come across me, <laughs> and he yanked me out of the way, and guess what? It was Dale Earnhardt Sr. wanting to get to him, and one of the happiest days I think I've ever seen uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr. because he, his son had just won a major race at Texas Motor Speedway. Right. Oh my gosh, it was a it was a great deal. And you know, listening to Dale Jr. on the radio, very emotional on those last couple of laps before he crossed under the checkered flag, and just one of those great, great Cinderella stories. You knew it was coming because Dale Jr. we knew was going to be great. He'd already won uh, some Xfinity titles. You know, prior to getting into the what was in the Bush series, but mm-hmm. uh, prior to getting into the Winston Cup or a Cup series. But man, I'm telling you, it was such an incredible day to see him pull that victory off. But I remember the first time talking about the first time I went to Texas, we still had a lot of work to do around the track. And it, what had happened was it was so wet as far as rain. It rained. Oh, my Lord four or five six days of heavy rain goodness and so it made it to where we couldn't park very well in the soft ground that they had just you know laid out and so the parking lots were horrible so bruton smith worked it out with the texas department of transportation to park basically park people on the interstate and we i will never forget walking down the interstate with steve wade who was the executive editor of nascar scene and we're walking in there Hold on yeah, just a second, Ben. Like, you you said something that hardly anybody's ever said. Walking down the interstate, right? You don't hear that very often. Sorry, we do not. And they <laughs> they had blocked it off to the point where I remember we we had a rental car together, and we're talking we're talking like, what should we do? I said, well, we're going to park right behind this guy because he stopped and he left. <laughs> I've never. It was so surreal. I left my car on the interstate. I'd be I, scared, I, I think man. it was I seventy, and we walked about a half a mile or so to the racetrack. It was crazy having, you know, what are we, what about our car? What are we going to do with our car? Well, we had to park it there. And then, uh, you know, it was just one of those that you find no disrespect to Eddie Gossage or any of the, anybody that worked at Texas, but it was the first time we'd had a, a race there. Yeah. And what was so great about it was the popularity was so big at this racetrack that they, they ran into problems because everybody loved it so much. And so they did not, they were standing room only. A lot of people had to be turned away for this first race. The traffic was not great. They had to work out all the, the interstates and such to get that 
going well for the next year. And then I remember that, I believe it was in 99 where Ricky Craven had a terrible crash there coming off, I believe, turn four and ended up having to redesign part of the racetrack, you know, between, I say, 99 and 2000 right in there uh-huh. because it was a little bit dangerous there. It was You come off a of four and it was no man's land and it, it, it just narrowed so quickly that they had a lot of crashes there and they had trouble at one time with water seeping into the track, you know, there too. So a lot of things he had to overcome, but they're celebrating their 25th anniversary this year and they're doing it by running the all-star race there. And it's, it's going to be incredible to see. And these drivers are going to have to remember that just because it looks like Charlotte Motor Speedway, it does not drive like Charlotte Motor Speedway. It's, it's a quite a bit different. It looks the same, but you got to drive it entirely different. Absolutely. And, and they've made some, some other changes to the layout of the racetrack, you know, in recent years, as far as changing the layout of turns one and two. Um, but so going back to some famous moments at Texas, Ben, obviously 97, pretty special. You had to, you know, you see Jeff Burton win his first race and you got to walk down the interstate. Two things that probably had never happened before. One we know hadn't happened. <laughs> right. uh, I don't know how many times right. you had to walk Either down the one. interstate. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but then in 2000, I think when people think, all right, what is like the, the ultimate moment at Texas historically? It's Dale Jr. celebrating with his dad after winning his first Cup Series race. But there is another historical significance of that race I think that a lot of people forget is the race in 2000 at Texas in the spring of April of 2000 was the only cup series start for Adam Petty, the son of Kyle Petty, the grandson of Richard, the great grandson of Lee. He was the first at the time, only fourth generation professional athlete. The only driver since to be a fourth generation cup series driver is Jeffrey Earnhardt, who's racing full time in the Xfinity series now, but 2000, 19 years old, Adam Petty driving for his his you know his family's team, gets in that car, runs the race. I mean, he was just trying to run the laps, you know, Ben. I mean, at this time, even more so than now. Now guys get in a race car in the Cup Series, and it's well, you, you got to produce from day one. At this time, 21 years ago, the expectations were a little bit different, especially for a 19 year old driver. When at this time, your young guns were in their early 30s. Very different time than now. But Adam Petty had done a pretty good job in the Xfinity Series and the Truck Series. He won his first ARCA race, Charlotte, his first start, just like his dad did at Daytona in 79. But so he runs his cup race. And the sad thing, the sad footnote to this, above what we're about to discuss, of course, is that he didn't get to race with his dad because Kyle didn't qualify. But Kyle was in, he ran the race. He subbed, I think, for Elliott Sadler. But when Kyle got in the car to sub as a sub to finish the race, Adam had blown his engine like five laps before that. So they didn't get mm. to share the racetrack together, unfortunately. Then we lost Adam a month later in a crash at New Hampshire. So we weren't we were really robbed of seeing a a potential champion in the future. I think uh, you know, I was an Adam Petty fan. I think a lot of people were. He had a lot of promise, but he also had not unlike Michael McDowell and Joey Logano, he had that winning smile. This guy's happy all the time, just genuinely thankful to be a part of, you know, the NASCAR circus. And, you know, above all else, genuinely a stand-up guy. I, I hate that I never got a chance to meet him. Ben, did you ever get a chance to interact with Adam at all? The only time I ever interacted with uh, Adam Petty, I believe, was 1999. And I have to be completely honest and open with you. I was walking out the gate of the of the Charlotte Motor Speedway out of the garage gate, and he was walking in, and he flashed me a big smile and said, how you doing? And I said, I'm doing great, <laughs> Adam. How are you? And that was the only time, sadly, I ever spoke to him. But you know what? I want to share something that Kyle told me recently that I just thought was so incredible. And the story goes, I asked him, I said, of the, of the wins that you had in the Cup Series, is there any – what is the, the most – uh, satisfying victory or victories to you. I'm talking to Kyle Petty now. Right. Kyle says, well, I'll tell you what, said, the, the wins that I enjoyed the most had nothing to do with me as a driver. And it kind of caught me off guard. Is that like, really? I said, yeah, there's two races. One, when we uh, took Adam to Charlotte Motor Speedway to run the ARCA race. And they remember, if you remember that, he won that race going yep. away. 1998. Just really, really great job. And it was so festive in Victory Lane that night. Richard was there. Kyle was there. Adam there. It's like he had turned the corner, okay? He was going to be so, so good. 
as a race driver. And you could tell Kyle was so proud of him. And the second one was, you got to go back to 1979 when Richard Petty won the Daytona 500 after the fight with Kale Bobby and and, uh, Donnie. Yeah. And I said, why was that one so special? And he said, because I actually had something to do with working on that race car and making that race car go fast and working on the body. He said he loved doing fabrication work, and he did a lot of work on the car himself. But he said one of the things I will never forget was Dale Inwood was the crew chief, and he said, all these screw heads here, they got to turn, either got to turn them horizontal or vertical, but they all got to look the same. <laughs> and he's like, what does that got to do with anything making the car fast? He said, nothing. But you got to make a good-looking race car. It'll go fast in the driver's mind when you make sure that all these pieces and parts are on there as perfect as you can put them. He was right. He said, I, yeah, and, and Kyle said, I never, ever forgot that. But he said, I had a lot of work with my own hands and my time working on that car, uh, which was an Oldsmobile. Mm-hmm. And it was just so and refreshing or neat to hear him talk about that. But, yeah, I could tell you know, even today, and it's very, very understandable, the sadness that that we all he feels and we all feel that we've lost Adam all those years ago. But he would have been a great star, I believe. And then the good Lord had a different plan for Adam, but he would have been great, just like his grandfather and his father for sure. The nineteen seventy nine Daytona five hundred, of course, happened about a year before Adam was born. But uh another interesting thing about that race, Ben, and I've heard the story before. I never really put two and two together, but if you go back and you you watch that race on TV, it was a you know a big deal was made about it by a lot of people and deservedly so because it was the first flag to flag full race broadcast on network television, and you know we caught we as an industry caught some lucky breaks because the Northeast was snowed in, so a bunch of people were staying in watching television, and you know didn't have three hundred channels then, so a lot of them caught the Daytona five hundred and helped really accelerate NASCAR's popularity at a time when the only person, the only racers most people had ever heard of were Mario Andretti, AJ Foyt, and Richard Petty. But the King winning this race, if you look at pictures from the seventy nine Daytona five hundred, and I think Ben Kyle maybe even mentioned this story, his car doesn't have a lot of STP decals on it. And so he, so the story goes, if you look at it, the, uh, the front of the car, the hood's actually blank. Uh, there's a STP decal on the sides and the King had had a dry 78 and it seemed maybe STP was starting to cut back their support. So this was a huge win, not just for Kyle and his satisfaction of having, you know, helped put together this race car. Kyle, Kyle won some great races in his own right as a driver. So Props to him for for putting those behind this one, but it's interesting to think, Ben, if if the King didn't win that race, if if uh, the two leaders don't crash on the back stretch on the last lap, Kale and Donnie, if the King brings it home in third, is he driving a different sponsored car the next year? It's a fair question, honestly, because STP had much of a smaller presence on that 1979 car than they had in the recent past, and him winning that race, I guess, it galvanized them like, hey, wait a minute. We sponsor the King. We can't get out of NASCAR. And so they, of course, they boosted it back up. And so in 80, and when he won his last 581, uh, had a lot of STP decals again. Did you ever hear anything like that? I don't think I'm making that up, am I? No, no. It is so incredible that you bring that up because that's one of the things Kyle and I talked about. And he told me, he said, but you got to go, let me preface it by saying, you got to go back to 78, okay? Dodge had come out with the Dodge Magnum, and you could not have come up with a more square race car than the Dodge Magnum. It was big. It was bulky. It was a flat front on it, other than just a little bit of an indention on the front. But it was as flat as the ground. Could have I mean, been a snowplow. Very much so. It was <laughs> not aerodynamic at all. And they debuted that thing at Daytona in 78. It, it just didn't run well at all. And by June of 78 at Michigan, they switched to a Chevrolet Monte Carlo. They had to. They were running so badly. Yeah. Well, because of all that, STP and, and Kyle confirmed this. STP was saying, "Look, you know, maybe it's time to to look another direction. You're getting older. Maybe you don't have it anymore." Well, it wasn't, it wasn't the king; it was the car, right? And so he started running better with the Monte Carlo in, uh, that year, but still, 
you know, looking at 79, Kyle said this also. He said, if you look at the car closely, there's an associate sponsor on there. A Southern Pride Car Wash was on the car yep. because they just weren't getting the money from STP. So you're right. It's so interesting. I've never really thought of that until you mentioned it, but it's so interesting to think had the, he not run well or blown an engine or whatever, what could have happened? Could they have gone to, to some other sponsor and never gone back to STP? That's a, that's a great point. I had never thought of that, but because of that win, it was so incredible that Richard, and by the way, a couple of side stories to that Richard had just gotten out of the hospital and had 40% of his stomach removed because of ulcers. Okay. Gosh. Like three, four days before that race. Really? And the doctors are saying, you cannot drive the 500. And Richard's saying, I'm going to drive the 500. And he ends up winning it. And, you know, that was part of the story. Of course, the fight with Kale, Donnie and Bobby, before that happened, NASCAR was a very comfortable Southern regional sport, wanting to be a bigger sport with a stick of ball sports. When the when the crash happened, everybody's like, man, did you see that race yesterday? Did you see that fight yesterday? People had never heard of NASCAR. So that did take them over that level to where it was uh, very well recognized after the 79 race. Snowed in, like you said. I remember we had two feet, two and a half feet. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere. And you had... The Bucks and the Knicks, I think, playing on one station, and you had a Western on the other station. <laughs> and that was it. And then you had CBS with the 500. So it's like, what do we do? We got three channels. Let's just choose. This looks the most exciting. Let's watch this thing called NASCAR. So, yeah, so many pieces of that puzzle came into play. And, and going back to yesterday with Michael McDowell, it's the same sort of thing because they're a mid-pack car. They admit that. Great sponsor that they have with Love's Truck Stops. But, I mean, they're not going to win a race. They're not going to win 12 or 15 races this year, okay? No disrespect, right. but they probably know that. But, hey, if you're going to come out here and give all you have to something, why not win the Daytona 500? And that's that sets their season in such a great place already that who knows more sponsors will come to that team. So it's very much like what STP and Petty's were going through in 79. So I'm going to pose a question to you, Ben, that, that this discussion has also got me thinking about. So let's say Richard Petty finishes third in the 500 and you can, you, you pick Kale or Donnie wins the 500 either way. The King brings it home in third DW's fourth. Maybe the King doesn't win again for a while. And STP says, all right, we're we're done, you know, at the end of 79. Sorry, King, it's been great. We want to try something else. Well, Ben, do you remember late 79, early 80, a sponsor which came into NASCAR, a particular gene company which came into NASCAR yeah. and sponsored a driver from North Carolina who wound up winning seven championships in Dale Earnhardt. Think about how if that happens, it is very possible because you know, Ben, these sponsors don't do this on a whim. They're not like, oh, that guy finished third. Let's sponsor him next week. Now, yeah, maybe Barstool Sports does, and a few others have, uh, particularly when you've got a budget, then you want to you want to spend some of it. But in most cases, in terms of NASCAR sponsorship, particularly at that time, it was a calculated decision, um, knowing that you weren't going to get Twitter exposure. You're not going to be on you know, Facebook. You're not going to be on Instagram. You're not going to be on TV that often. So it, it was a different whole it was a whole different scenario but if wrangler decided to sponsor dale at the end of 79 and end 80 you got to think that you know if if the king's 43 car is open could we have seen a blue and yellow number 43 uh wrangler chevy it's possible isn't it oh gosh yeah it's very very possible and as i said earlier so many of these conversations have happened uh, and I'll give you a quick example. When when Jeffrey Bodine wanted to drive the number five Hendrick Motorsports car, the flagship car, in 1984, he went to the dealership at Hendrick Motorsports, which was City Chevrolet, about, right. I think the only one that was running at the time. And he sits in the lobby, and Rick comes out, and he says, I don't know what to tell you, Jeff. I'm waiting on a guy named Tim Richmond to call. And as soon as Tim calls, we'll put the deal together. He said, well, I'm just going to sit here in, in case Tim doesn't call. It's all right. It's your day. It's your nickel. Stay as long as you like. Well, as it turned out, he stayed about eight hours. And finally, <laughs> 5 o'clock gets there, and Tim decides not to sign the contract for whatever reason because it was a new team. He was afraid to commit. Right. As it turned out, Jeff Bodine ends up signing the contract 
on his desk that day and lo and behold his career is in the cup series is is golden and right. of course tim did did come back to drive for hendrick later but that's exactly the way that came down the pike and it was one of those deals that you know he could have walked out and said okay well i'll call you later and he didn't and he stayed and showed his commitment to rick and that impressed rick so you're right things could happen in a whim and a phone call and a conversation that could have just changed everything so yeah i'm i'm guilty of looking at race cars and thinking what would that car look like if it had a different sponsor on it what i would think that all look of like us if, do yeah yeah if this car if if uh good wrench may have gone to somebody else or you know it's just interesting to speculate how how these could have happened but they do come down to that last little itsy bitsy phone call conversation handshake and a lot of deals back then were handshakes and yeah. were contracts and so that's it's just interesting to think about it yeah it is and and you know maybe dale earnhardt still goes to richard childress but they keep piedmont airlines in the sponsor and dale earnhardt becomes known as the man in white because that yeah. car was white then <laughs> yeah. hey man you know it, it's possible i just uh, this discussion really got me thinking that you know as close as the king was to losing stp as a sponsor in the late 70s you you knew you were going to have companies wanting to sponsor that car no matter where he finished because Richard Petty's the ultimate NASCAR property. And sure. so I think, it, you know, sure it would make a lot of sense considering Wrangler's, you know, they're, they're a, a Southern company. You know, the King wore blue jeans all the time with a big old belt and a cowboy hat, just like everybody else said in 1979. And I assume if I were an adult in 1979, I probably would have as well. But, you know... They they patterned their marketing when they broke into sport really with Dale as Dale's one tough customer. But it would have been really strange if they would have had one tough customer, but that would have been the king, and he would have had the little Wrangler horse on his sunglasses instead of the STP sticker. But yeah, it, you know, you just you never know. NASCAR is a a sport where I, I would say even more than any other professional sport, Ben, mm-hmm. maybe baseball. Um, but even then, I think things can change just on one thing and it's not even in the it's certainly not even in in the sake of competition it can be who do you see in the garage area at a particular day and it changes the game and it certainly you know it could have for the king if he didn't win that race and uh speaking of things that that change the game ben um, we're on the subject of things going on in North Carolina, the King maybe losing his sponsor and in and Wrangler. It didn't end up happening. One thing that did end up happening, unfortunately, in NASCAR was that we lost Rockingham Speedway, formerly known as North Carolina Motor Speedway in Rockingham, in the cup schedule after the 2004 season, long time after the King had already hung it up. He still had some cars racing, as he does now. But, uh, Ben, this was the only race, 2004 Subway 400, race of the week for a lifetime in NASCAR. Only time I ever went to Rockingham for a race. It was the last one. It was an absolute classic. Uh, to give a little bit of background for you guys, Rockingham had been in the Cup Series since the 1960s, uh, a track surface unlike anything else in the Cup Series. You had high bank corners where guys would you know, want to hug the bottom, and you had a little dogleg on the front stretch. The place ate up tires, almost like Darlington. Just a very unique place. They typically ran uh, one of the first races of the season, and they were one of the last races of the season. Well, by 2004, uh, they were down to one race date. It was in February of 2004, and I was let's see, I was 16 years old at the time, Ben, and I, uh, which is crazy because now there's kids running the truck series that are 16. Um, I don't, I don't even know if I had my driver's license yet. I don't think I did. Um, but, uh, you know, so we go to Rockingham, and it was this awesome race. It was a super fun experience. Dale Jr. had won the Daytona 500 the week before, so you got fan base it was just filling up the grandstands with red shirts and red hats for his Budweiser number 8 car. Uh, but there was another red car that almost won that race. Casey Kane was making his second cup start, and he lost to Matt Kenseth by 10 thousandths of a second. Ben, I vividly remember screaming yes when he crossed the finish line because I thought he beat him. I thought he beat Kansas at the line. He came up a little bit short. Um, another interesting moment in that race, Carl Long, who uh, still owns some cup cars. Unfortunately, they didn't mm-hmm. make the field for the 500. Carl Long, if you recall, Ben, he barrel rolled down the back stretch in that race. I had a wild crash. Uh, you know, about uh, two thirds of the way through the race. But I just remember Rockingham as being a place where people, they didn't want to see it go, but 
you know, just as well as I do, Ben, Rockingham, North Carolina is not quite what you would classify as a metropolis. And, uh, you know, you do need some infrastructure to maintain those cup races. But, man, as a racing facility, as a place to truly test drivers, there are a few that could match Rockingham. Oh, absolutely. And Rockingham was just one of those places that was unique in the fact that, it, yeah, sure, it's an oval, but I don't think there was any track like it anywhere on the circuit. Okay, I had a little bit of dogleg in the front, and it's just a tough track to drive. And like you said, it, would, it was pretty murderous on tires and that kind of thing. But just a, a very, very quick story. I'll try to keep it brief here. But You don't have to, yeah. man. We got all day. Okay. <laughs> well, I like to <laughs> two hours. Two hours later. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I ramble. But anyway, 1965. Uh, a little bit of backstory. Curtis Turner had been banned from NASCAR because of trying to get a union activity to come into NASCAR. And in, in a nutshell, and Bill France Sr., founder of NASCAR, said, "Nope, we're not having unions." And oh, by the way, you're banned from NASCAR forever, for life. You'll never come back. Now, Curtis Turner was uh, maybe the equivalent of a of a Kevin Harvick or a, uh, at that era. I mean, he was, or, or say a Denny Hamlin, he was a top driver in the mid sixties. Yep. So in 1965, when the, when the track comes to fruition and they have their first race, ticket sales aren't that great. So Bill France says, well, you know, I got a, a ace in my pocket here. I'm going to go back to Curtis Turner and get him a ride and get him to come back and lift the suspension. Of course, he, Curtis said later he felt like he'd just been paroled and he was back in the cup fold again and ready to race. Well, as it turns out, uh, Curtis ends up winning the race in a Wood Brothers Ford and and handily handled the field. I mean, he was just long gone, great car, great driver. So that was a great Cinderella story for the mid-60s, how the star comes back and, and vindicated and wins at Rockingham. Other memories I have of Rockingham, it seemed like there's a lot of races there that, like you described with Matt Kenseth and Casey, how it was just so, so close at the end. Yep. I remember a race, I believe, between Harry Gant and Neil Bonnet, and it came down to the width of a bumper on that one. And, and of course, we can't forget how, uh, you know, there were some races there where, oh, my gosh, it's just, you know, Kerry Arbor ran so good there, and, and Daryl Walter Brand had many wins there. I wish we could go back, and I understand, I guess, to a degree how – you know, the reason maybe that they did not keep the, that track on the schedule. But, man, it was just so great. And even today, if you go back to it, I think it wouldn't take very much to, to get it ready for another cup race or maybe even an Xfinity or truck race. It's just an awesome racetrack. And I, I wish there was some way that we could come back. And and they did try to run some, some late model type stuff there. But this didn't, you know, it didn't generate the crowd that they, they need, but the track's still in excellent shape and it's changed hands a few times. Andy Hillenberg owned it for a while and a yep. couple of other companies. Not sure what we're going to do with it, but I wouldn't break my heart at all to see, you know, NASCAR go back to it. And, and who knows? I mean, you never know. They might say, Hey, this is a great opportunity to come back and, and they might use it again. And it's very possible, Ben, because, you know, I think whether you're a new fan or an old race fan, if you look at the 2021 Cup schedule, they're going to Nashville Super Speedway, a place that's been shut down for like a decade. So, you know, it's not even been that long since Rockingham had a, had a major NASCAR event. They ran some truck races there in 2012 and 2013. And our man Casey Kane, who was, you know, I don't want to say robbed, but he missed it just by a little bit in 2004. They went back. And Casey won in 2012 at, uh, at Rockingham in the Truck Series. But, Ben, I, I did some digging while you were talking, looking up that mm -hmm. race you mentioned with Neil Bonnet and Harry Gantz. So it was a 1985 Carolina 500, uh, same race, spring race as a Subway 400 from 2004, but 19 years earlier. If Neil Bonnet beat Harry Gantz. If you look at the result on racing reference, the margin of victory is eight inches. Um, oh I don't know how you yeah. time that, but it's probably just about exactly the same as what you saw with Matt Kenseth and Casey Kane in 2014. There are two interesting trends with Rockingham, Ben. The first, you mentioned it, a lot of close finishes. I think one of the reasons for that is if you ever played Rockingham on a video game, I think it's on iRacing, but on any of the old EA Sports NASCAR games or Papyrus games, um, you would see that when you come up off of turn four, and if you've driven, of course, you know, if you come up off of turn four, you can run a different groove there. You can even, you know, kind of dime in the corner and enter high in three and four and come out. 
and you can end up side by side with a guy. And that was what made it so conducive to having these classic finishes at the start finish line that we saw with Matt Kenseth and Casey Kane, that we saw with uh, with Neil Bonnet and, and Harry Gant and several others. But another trend at Rockingham that really kind of spoke to the era that it was really big, Ben, was uh, guys who just would get a handle on that racetrack and flat out dominate it. So in the Xfinity series, uh, Mark Martin won four in a row there from 96 to 97, swept them all. The last four Xfinity series races at Rockingham were won by Jamie McMurray, Jamie McMurray, Jamie McMurray, and Jamie McMurray. So, and I don't think I had a hand in any of those. So props to you, Jamie. You get all the credit for those, man. Um, But it was also the case with one of the guys we've talked about already in this episode, Ben, Kyle Petty in the early 90s was absolute money at Rockingham. Yes, he was. He was, uh, he was, he was, he was absolutely incredible there. Those guys, I don't know if if it was his, his crew chief. I don't know if it was, um, Robin Pemberton or, or Gary Nelson, but when he was driving for Felix Sabatis in the early 90s, if you were a Kyle Petty fan in the early 1990s and you wanted to see Kyle win, get your tickets to Rockingham because that guy was he, was, he was incredible those years. There was a yeah. couple races where he put on a 2016 Truex and the 600-style beatdown leading like 380 of 392 laps yeah. or something like that. I mean, just waxed the field. Ben, do you remember anything about those races? And, and how does a guy get that dominant at a racetrack well I, I do remember the 92 race he won there and what i remember most about it was it was a tra- it was a weekend that i don't think i'd ever seen that much rain at a racetrack okay it was just and we're we're all sitting in the media center and, and some of the drivers were in there with us and you know just sipping on a soft drink here and there and it was like we're not why are, why don't they call this thing off because this is not going to work today we're what are we, we unless we have boats we're not going to race okay <laughs> It was yeah. so bad, Aaron. I'm not kidding you. It was like, what are they waiting on? Well, apparently, they had you know crystal ball or radar or something because suddenly, about 4:30 that day, the skies opened and the sun peeked out. It's like, and everybody's running to the cars. You know, it's like, what is this? I mean, I, I was ready to even leave the track, and I, even Kyle said to me that day, he said, "What are we doing here? What are we doing here? You ready to walk down the interstate and go home?" Yeah, right. I was ready to walk down <laughs> my second interstate and go home, but. At the time, I mean, the sun comes out. It's like somebody put it in the right order, and boom, we're racing. Well, Kyle is like in a different time zone all day long. I mean, he's gone. And I remember that mellow yellow 42 car he drove for Felix, and it was just such an amazing race because he was so dominant. But to answer the second part of that question, you know what I think why Kyle was so good there at North Carolina Motor Speedway is because I think he watched his dad dominate the place so much and talk to Richard Petty so much about how do I get around this place and shared some some great stories over over dinners and saying this is what you got to do here and there could be because I really believe that I think Kyle was good because he studied every move that Richard Petty made and and Rockingham was one of his better racetracks there's no doubt about it and and it's it was really one of the home races for those guys you know Randleman and Level Cross North Carolina not terribly far from Rockingham mm-hmm. so you definitely have a, a pride in doing well at a racetrack that's geographically close to you and Richard and Kyle definitely did honestly Ben about everybody that we've talked about in this episode ended up winning at Rockingham uh, certainly the the Petties did uh, Dale Earnhardt did and um, a, a lot of guys did uh, that we mentioned Jeff Burton as well. Uh, the only ones I think who didn't were Jeffrey Bodine, and I'm not sure that Michael McDowell ever ran at Rockingham. I'm sure he'd love it if he did. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, just a super cool racetrack. And, you know, as long as that place is standing, as long as uh, as long as long it's there, you know, I'm going to hold out hope that maybe one day we'll see another cup race there or even a trucker Xfinity race. If, if they go back there, I'm, I'm probably going to hit it up because that place is a whole lot of fun. Um, but they definitely could boost the uh, – the restaurant options near the racetrack uh, past like they had like a Hardee's and a Burger King and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and you definitely know, and honestly, uh, the the fans in that area were were absolutely the greatest because they filled the place up every time. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I think what made the decision uh, for them to for NASCAR to move it somewhere else or take the race away was there just wasn't an infrastructure around it enough, such as hotels such as, um, you know, the restaurants you're talking about. But I went to Rockingham. I live in Salisbury now. I lived in Lexington for for a few years. And it, it was one of those tracks I couldn't tell you how to get there from the back way. 
but I could go, I could drive the back way to Rockingham and I'd go through Ellerby where Benny Parsons was from. Yeah. And there was some back roads leading to the racetrack and there was absolutely no way I could tell you how to do it. I could take <laughs> you there. I could yeah. probably still take you there. But if somebody said, can you write this down? Nope. I have no idea. But I know to go past this oak tree and that mailbox and there's a little red barn. You got to turn right. That kind of thing. <laughs> So I loved that racetrack. It was so much fun. And and you could be there from where I live. You could be there in an hour. And that was what's so great about it. It wasn't that far from Charlotte. It wasn't that far from, you know, the Piedmont area, say, in Pinehurst down that way. Not far at all from Pinehurst. And so, yeah, it, and not far from Level Cross, really, uh, where the petties are from. And uh, so you could get there in no time and, and be guaranteed to have a great race. And, by the way, that was the track where we did – the pit crew uh, story with Terry Labonte and, and, uh, you know, pulled out the number 44 out of the hat and all that. So yeah, it was just a great racetrack. I, I would love to see us go back and I'm still hoping someday we'll be able to do that. I'm hoping that one day MapQuest and, uh, Waze and, and Google maps will let me download the Ben white version. Cause I'm the same way as you've been when I drive, you know, I, I, I two and a half miles doesn't tell me turn left to the sit, go two and a half miles away. That tells me that's how I learn. <laughs> Yeah, if somebody said, <laughs> I'll give you $100 right now, if you could tell me how to get to Rockingham the way you went, I'd say keep your money. Uh, I, there's no way I could actually <laughs> tell you how to do it. Oh, I could man. take you if you want to ride with me, but I could never tell you. So, Well, Ben, just like Neil Bonnet in 1985 at Rockingham, I think we finally crossed the finish line on Episode 7 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. It's been a blast, as always, chatting up with you, man. Let's do it again soon. Um, looking forward to it. We're going to be back with episode eight faster than Ryan Newman can rock it around a mile and a half track in 2003. Uh, in the meantime, throw a rating our way, wherever you're listening. If it's YouTube, Apple podcasts, uh, if you're listening to us through two Dixie cups hooked to your laptop, however's easiest toss a rating our (laughs) way. We'd love to hear your feedback in the meantime for Ben White. I'm Aaron Burns. Thanks for listening so much to another episode of a lifetime in NASCAR. We'll be back soon. So long for now. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.